Here's everything you might have missed in Andor Episode 8. Welcome back, Cassian Fandors, to our weekly breakdown of Andor. Written by House of Cards creator Bo Williman, the eighth episode steadily builds the tension across the galaxy far, far away as our heroes adapt to their new normal. We're gonna break it all down for you in just a moment, but to do so, we have to spoil what happens. So if you haven't seen the latest Andor yet, leave now before you see something shocking. <laughs> Okay, let's get into it, shall we? Episode 8 shows the Empire continuing to crack down on rebel activity in the wake of the mission on Aldani. Slowly but surely, we're seeing vulnerabilities in the nascent rebel movement, as well as how hard the hammer's coming down on normal citizens like Keith Gergo. Can't believe that name. It's out of the frying pan and into the fire for Cassian as his vacation on Space Miami quickly turned into a six-year trip to jail. Cassian does not pass go, he doesn't collect 200 credits, he goes directly to jail as the shore troopers escort him to prison transports. I'm a tourist! Move it! One of the transports is heading for Belsavis, which in the Star Wars Legends lore was an icy world used by the Rakata Infinite Empire as a prison colony. The Rakata Infinite Empire was briefly mentioned in Episode 4. They first appeared in Star Wars lore in 2003's Knights of the Old Republic game. They were an ancient galaxy-spanning empire of amphibious aliens who used highly advanced technology to conquer and enslave much of the known universe. They predated the events of the Skywalker saga by thousands and thousands of years, but now we're getting another other aspect of their lore, at least tangentially. Belsavis was also where Jedi younglings like Roganda Ismarin were captured by the Inquisitors. If that name sounds familiar, that's because it was one of the names of the missing Jedi scrawled on the safe house wall on Jabim for the path in Obi-Wan Kenobi. Now, in the main canon, it's back to being used as a prison colony by the Empire. Cassian doesn't go to Belsavis, though. He winds up being sent from Nyamos to Narkina 5, a moon that houses a bunch of high-tech floating prison colonies. These heptagonal industrial panopticons are like if Ikea sold elaborate torture chambers installed in Rapture from Bioshock. The guards carry no weapons beyond cattle prods, and they wear special boots to avoid getting electrocuted by the tungstoid steel floor. As for their minimally invasive enforcement techniques, well, that's a bit of an understatement. <laughs> And if tungstoid steel sounds familiar, that's because this immensely dense metal first appeared in the 2009 novel Fate of the Jedi Abyss. Anyway, Cassian's initially casing the joint, clocking that the guards are understaffed, where they keep their special boots, and how this prison is laid out. And this is information that will likely inform his inevitable escape plans later on. But over the course of this episode, the place slowly grinds him into a pulp in just one month's time. Cassian goes from nervous but alert to defeated and dissociating to seemingly accepting his fate of chugging gruel from a tube and building mysterious widgets for the Empire in a nightmarish competitive sprint each and every day for 12 hours at a time. And to what end? Top table wins flavor. Last place gets fried. Cassian's chief taskmaster is one of his fellow inmates, the gruff Kino Loy, played by Snoke himself, Andy Serkis. And while that malevolent meat puppet turned out to be a bit of a red herring in the sequels, Serkis gets a much meatier role here with Kino, a prisoner that basically acts like one of the guards. The labor isn't quite as mind-numbing as what Cyril Karn's doing over on Coruscant, but it is grueling, relentless, and impenetrable from a glance. I'm still not entirely sure what the prisoners here are actually building. Fidget spinners for AT-ATs, Imperial turret arrays, literal cogs in the Imperial war machine? The mind boggles. 
One of the members of Cassian's workstation team may also seem familiar. That's because Melshi also appeared in Rogue One as a member of the Rebel Extraction Team who rescued Jin Erso on Wobani. But first, they'll need to devise a way out of Narkina 5. And while Cassian seems beat down, the other prisoners have a thriving culture of their own. At one point, Cassian sees some communicating via sign language across the large glass tunnels that separate their units. And this will also likely come into play in the prison break to follow. More importantly, the inmates seem to know a lot more about what's happening in the outside world than Cassian does, or at least more than Keith Gergo is letting on. The recently passed Public Order Resentencing Directive apparently doubled everybody's prison sentence regardless of their infraction. So it's a good thing that Keith Gergo seems to know nothing about what happened on Aldani, huh? Sure would be a shame if they knew the truth. About what? Ultimately, though, it's too much for some people to bear. We see one inmate, Vimos, take his own life by stepping out onto the electrified floor. It's treated as more of an inconvenience than anything else by the other prisoners, which really speaks to just how bleak conditions are in this brightly lit hellhole. And speaking of brightly lit hellholes, Cyril Karn finds himself going from corporate hell at Lumen Industries, I mean Jacques Tati's playtime, I'm sorry, I mean the Bureau of Standards Fuel Purity Department, to an ISB interrogation chamber. Now apparently he's been falsifying records in an attempt to hunt down Cassian. And his obsessive quest attracts the attention of Dedra Miro, who pries even more valuable info from this huge f***ing dork about Lieutenant Blevins' blunders. Although Dedra rebuffs Cyril for shooting his shot for a position at the ISB, this boy detective won't be held back for long. You just know he's gonna wind up either in Imperial fascist finery or in a jail cell by the end of the season. But Dedra has bigger fish to fry. She briefs Colonel Wolf Yularen on her theory about how these pockets, pockets of rebel activity are actually fomenting, fomenting a sprawling conspiracy at the Empire's expense. And not only does she have Cassian's info pulled up, but she's also on the hunt for Luthen, who she's deemed Axis because Fulcrum was already taken. I said... From fascism to fashion, we find Mon Mothma and her loathsome husband Perrin being served squigs. These weird little worms fizz when added to an alcoholic drink to make a strange space cocktail that was apparently very popular back on Chandrilla, despite whatever Mon's daughter may think. You're drinking squigs? Oh, I've lost my taste for it. It's disgusting. Now, once again, Mon meets up with her old friend Tay, the Chandrillan banker, only to learn that funneling her money and laundering these stolen Imperial credits is gonna be a bit harder than expected. The Empire's apparently installing new auditors each and every day at the Chandrillan bank as they crack down on terrorist activities. Both Perrin and Lita seem suspicious of Mon Mothma and Tay. They're most likely assuming that she's having an affair with this guy rather than trying to finance a rebellion from within the locus of Imperial power. Now, personally, I'm still waiting for the other shoe to drop and one of these two to turn out to be an Imperial informant themselves. Now, as Mon attempts to win support for an upcoming vote, we see the Senator's opinions are kind of split on whether or not the Emperor is overreaching. One Senator argues that the Emperor's primary charge is to protect the people, but Mon Mothma questions the wisdom of surveillance and prosecution without limit. Once again, it harkens back to debates around the Patriot Act in post 9-11 America, as the government passed legislation to increase surveillance of its citizens and funding for intelligence agencies to generate the illusion of safety and security. Of course, these senators wind up laughing it off with a pithy joke because most folks don't want to acknowledge the rising tide of fascism until they're in over their heads. And speaking of the rising tide of fascism, life on Ferrix just keeps getting worse under Imperial occupation. The Empire's taken over the hotel in town as its base of operations, and now stormtroopers are stationed out front. 
Bix and Brasso check in on Marva, who's getting sicker and sicker by the day. She apparently collapsed while trying to unlock a floodgate on Rick's Road, where her husband Clem was killed, to access tunnels beneath the hotel. And why, you ask? To let the rebels in, of course. Because even in her twilight years, Marva remains a stone-cold badass. But folks, you can't just introduce Chekhov's secret hotel tunnels like that and not pay them off later, right? I mean, Cassian's definitely gonna use them at some point, right? I hope so. But the Imperials aren't the only folks looking for signs of Cassian. Vel and Cinta are also undercover staking out Marva's house and arguing about their future. Vel wants these two to sneak off and spend time together, but for Cinta, the fight has and always will come first. Cinta calls out Vel for being a rich girl running away from her family, while for Cinta, this is a fight to the death. In her impatience, Bix sends a message off-world to Luthen trying to reach Cassian. But back on Coruscant at Clea's behest, Luthen wisely decides to shut down this line to Ferrix. Back at the shop, we see all the usual Easter eggs from previous episodes, including our clearest look yet at Indiana Jones's whip in Carbonite. Unfortunately, this blows not only Bix's cover, but compromises Pock, the man who ran the shop that housed this secret radio array. And after torturing Pock, Dedra has Bix hauled in to grill her about everything she knows about Cassian. It feels like that an ill-advised return to Ferrix will definitely be in Cassian's future, especially if Dedra uses Bix and Marva's well-being as leverage against him. As for Luthen, he takes a trip to the genuinely miserable-looking world of Segra Milo to pay a visit to his old pal, Saw Guerrera. Outside, we see old Two-Tube standing guard. This is one of the twin Tognath mercenaries that first appeared in Rogue One as part of Saw's extremist group, the Partisans. Based on the rifle here, this is likely Benthic, who also fought alongside Enfys Nest and the Cloud Riders in Solo, A Star Wars Story. Luthen needs a favor from Saw. He wants this persnickety partisan to join forces with another rebel cell to take out an Imperial power station on Spellhouse. As Luthen alludes, Saw clearly has air support he can lend to missions based on the X-Wing we see parked out front. Now, Luthen's goals are simple. He wants to use all of these disparate pockets, pockets of rebels to join together to form a larger alliance. He wants to strike at the Empire hard and repeatedly because he wants to bait out an extreme response. Because as Luthen puts it, Oppression breeds rebellion. The only way to convince the general public of the righteousness of their cause is to make conditions so untenable that no other option seems viable. But for Saw, this is an ideological bridge too far at this point in time. He talks of separatists, neo-republicans, the Gorman Front, the Partisan Alliance, sectorists, human cultists, galaxy partitionists, and on and on and on. His point being that everybody's fighting for a different cause, and those are causes that he finds at odds with his goals of violent anarchic resistance. As for the Gorman Front, they will continue to be important as things move forward. Remember, they are on Mon Mothma's radar because of draconian imperial policies blocking their shipping lanes. In a few years' time, they will be the site of the Gorman Massacre, an event where imperial troops gun down peaceful protesters in cold blood. The Gorman Massacre is an event that will ultimately send Mon Mothma on the run Mothma, cementing her status as a true blue rebel. For now, though, it's just another label that divides the rebellion, keeping it disorganized despite the clear benefits of working together towards a common cause. The bigger question is, will Luthen's continued fieldwork lead to him getting caught by Dedra and the ISB? I mean, it certainly seems that way, but I imagine they'll catch up with Cassian before the Imperial Axis has Axis in their clutches. 
Anyway, folks, there you have it. That's everything we spotted and wanted to dive into in Andor Episode 8. This show keeps on getting better and better through weaving in the subtleties of imperial politics and demonstrating the grim effect the Empire's policies are having on normal citizens. So fingers crossed the show can keep it up because this is really one of the most compelling series out there, especially in the Star Wars universe. Now, we'll be back next week with another breakdown, but for now, tell us, what did you think of this week's Andor? Did you spot anything that we missed? I'm listening. Let us know in the comments below, and for the latest and greatest in the world of pop culture, make sure you stay tuned to Nerdist.com.